Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back in the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Over Labor Day weekend, I once again participated in a live show at the Festival of Oddities in Charlotte, Michigan. This festival is organized by my friend and fellow podcast host, Jen Carpenter. You can hear Jen's Michigan-centric storytelling on the Violent Ends podcast, which I highly recommend. Jen and I did a live show for attendees and opted to cover the case of Michigan serial killer Donald Gene Miller, who I covered back in 2017, but this case absolutely needs to be looked at again. Now. In the world of true crime, we typically talk about things that happened in the past, but right now, we need to talk about the future. One date in particular, May 1st, 2031. That's less than eight years away. And that's the date that an admitted, convicted serial killer will be released back into our community, if he's not released before then. In the 1970s, there was nothing unique about a clean-cut white guy murdering a bunch of pretty young women. But here's something that is unique about today's case. Even though he confessed to the murder of four women, today's killer has not served a single day in prison for murder. You heard that right. He has not served a single day in prison for murder. But as we get closer to May 1st, 2031, the more real the threat becomes to our community. Today, we're talking about the devoutly religious youth pastor, Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice major, the meek-looking boy-next-door-turned-serial killer, Donald Gene Miller. And I want to mention that Miller legally changed his first name from Donald to Don, so I really want to call him Donald. Between January of 1977 and August of 1978, Killer Miller, as they call him in the joint, murdered four local women before being apprehended during an attack on two teenagers in Delta Township. On August 16, 1978, Miller was arrested for that attack and brought to the Eaton County Jail, which was located at the same location that Festival of Oddities was held over the weekend. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from Rod Sadler's book about the Miller case called Killing Women. Quote, The old Eaton County Courthouse, built in 1867, towered over the center of Charlotte with stately charm in the center of the small city. The tall white pillars on both the south and east sides of the building were a stark contrast to the orange brick, as they marked two entrances to the grand structure. Sitting next to the courthouse was a two-story brick building with bars across the windows on the second floor. Built in 1961, the jail had replaced an antiquated building that had been connected to a large Victorian residence that had once been home to the sheriff. The new jail, built separate from the old sheriff's residence, sat in virtually the same location. Detective Kelly turned onto the main street dividing the east and west sides of Charlotte, then quickly slowed for the left turn into the Sheriff's Department parking lot. The small, fenced area at the rear of the building was limited to eight patrol cars. As he made the turn, the garage door at the far end of the lot began to slowly rise. 
and the detective eased the unmarked car inside. Kelly and Dedifo had arrived with their prisoner. Before we get to the part where we talk about how a serial killer could confess to murder but never serve any time for it and be up for parole every few years, we need to talk about who Donald is and what he did. And I want to mention real quick, lest anyone think this is some long-ago faraway crime, if Miller is not granted parole at his next hearing and winds up serving his full sentence, he will be 76 years old when he's released in 2031. Is that old? Yeah, that's old. Is it too old to be a threat? Absolutely not. So come with me to New Year's Eve, 1976, the end of the bicentennial in the United States. The nation is in flux. Michigan-born President Gerald Ford is finishing out his term in the White House. He took over as vice president when the sitting vice president, Spiru Agnew, resigned. Ford ascended to the presidency when Richard Nixon left office in disgrace. Gerald Ford is the only person to serve as vice president and president without ever being elected to the office. After the chaos of Nixon's second term, the nation was ready for change and selected a Navy veteran, nuclear engineer, and one-time peanut farmer to lead the country. And while we don't know who she voted for, 19-year-old Martha Sue Young will not live long enough to see Jimmy Carter take office. And Jimmy Carter wasn't the only man taking office in January. Ingham County had a brand new prosecutor effective January 1st, 1977. His name is Peter Houck, and his new job started with the news of the disappearance of Michigan State University student Martha Sue Young. The initial missing persons report came in to East Lansing police officer Kenneth Ouellette from a man named Gene Miller. Miller and Ouellette were previously acquainted. They knew each other from a sportsman's club, and Miller was calling to report that his son's fiancée, Martha Young, was missing. It was Martha's mother, Sue Young, who asked him to make the call. And listeners, I don't think Gene Miller mentioned that Young was his son's former fiancé during their conversation. When police took the report on the missing girl, they learned that Young had spent the evening babysitting for a neighbor, accompanied by her former fiancé, Donald Miller. When police questioned Miller, the quiet, clean-cut young man gave an account of their evening, and it ended with him dropping Martha off at her home. He said she'd been sitting on the front porch when he'd driven away. The situation between Martha and Donald Miller was awkward. They'd gotten engaged earlier in the year. She was 19 years old, living at home with her parents and studying French at Michigan State University. Don was older, at 22. He also lived at home, and he too studied at Michigan State University. His major was criminal justice. The Young family and the Miller family attended the same church, and Martha was friends with Don's sister before the couple started dating. Around Christmas of 1976, Martha had second thoughts about marrying Donald. Martha's mother sat her down and said, I support your decision to call off the engagement, but I'd like to know why. 
and Martha told her, Don is 22 years old, and aside from getting a summer job in 76, he's never really worked and didn't seem to want to. She also didn't like his approach to school. Martha enjoyed learning and was enthusiastic about her major. Donald didn't study and didn't apply himself. Finally, Donald wanted to stay home all the time. Martha wanted to go out and meet people. She wanted to do things. But he didn't approve of this and preferred that she stay at home as he did. Martha said that she loved Donald, but they weren't a good match and it wasn't the type of marriage she was hoping for. Their breakup, just two days before New Year's Eve, appeared amicable. Donald insisted that she keep the ring. He asked to spend New Year's Eve together, and she agreed. They were still friends, after all. So when police arrived at the young home on New Year's Day to take a missing persons report, they assumed Martha would turn up. Like other college students before her, she'd gone out to party and maybe overindulged. Perhaps she was sleeping it off at a friend's house. Then they learned that Martha, like her former fiancé, was religious and conservative. Martha did not drink or smoke. She wasn't known to party or stay out late. Her failure to come home was out of character and of deep concern to her family. Law enforcement took a report and reassured the family that Martha would turn up, but they were wrong. Law enforcement was also curious. How did Martha disappear from her front porch? Was Donald, her slightly built, eyeglass-wearing former fiancé, telling them the whole story? Any investigator will tell you to start with the last person known to have seen the victim, and that person was 22-year-old Donald Jean Miller. Miller's story about their evening didn't add up, and then his story changed. The inconsistencies in his story told law enforcement that he was lying to them. The lead investigator, East Lansing Police Detective Rick Westgate, was convinced that Miller was involved, but with no signs of foul play and no body, they couldn't prove anything had happened, and they had to wait until they had more to work with. Donald Miller was enrolled in the criminal justice program at Michigan State University, and he graduated in the spring of 1977. Then he took a job as a security guard and continued living at home with his parents in East Lansing. Meanwhile, law enforcement made Martha's case a priority. With memories of Ypsilanti's co-ed killer still fresh after only a few years, students and their families were worried. Martha's case went nowhere until October 1977, when hunters discovered a set of clothing in a field in Bath Township just north of Lansing. The clothing was laid out on the ground, pants and a top, with the undergarments tucked inside of them as if the wearer of the clothes had simply evaporated, leaving her clothing behind. This discovery alarmed the police. Because Martha Sue Young did not evaporate, someone made her disappear and then left her clothing in a field to be discovered. Her purse, with her driver's license inside, was found nearby. Prosecutor Houck said of the discovery, We were convinced we were dealing with some kind of psychopath. And they were dealing with a psychopath, and they had no idea how bad things would become. Back in 1977, police have Martha's clothing, but they do not have her body, and they do not have any answers. Donald Gene Miller continues to live his life as a free man. 
and it will be almost a year before anything else happens in this case. The summer of 1978 was a welcome break from the brutal winter Michigan had endured. In January of 78, a historic snowstorm struck, dumping three feet of snow on the ground, bringing the state to a halt for a few days and taking a few lives. When the sun began to shine and temperatures rose, people were ready to embrace the warmth of summer. But the sunshine also brought out a serial killer who continued his grim work, starting with the disappearance of 27-year-old Marita Choquette. Employed as an editorial assistant at a local TV station, Choquette was last seen on June 15, 1978. That evening, Marita had dinner with a friend and returned to her apartment in Grand Ledge, which is just west of Lansing. Around 8 p.m., a neighbor saw her take her trash to the dumpster. Marita would not be seen alive again. In the morning, her car, a yellow opal, was in the parking lot of the TV station where she worked, but it wasn't parked in her usual spot. Instead, it was at the back of the lot. Friends and family reported her missing immediately. Almost two weeks later, Choquette's mutilated body was found by a farmer in Holt, Michigan. There were concrete blocks on and around her remains. Her hands had been cut off and left near the body. Her death was violent and gruesome. What Sue Young, the mother of missing Michigan State University student Martha Young, noticed was that Marita looked a lot like her daughter. They were the same height, they had the same hair color and style, and they shared a similar build. As police were processing the grim scene in Holt, another call came in. A Michigan State University student, 21-year-old Wendy Bush, was missing. She'd last been seen at the south end of campus near Case Hall. Police found themselves struggling to keep up with a violent predator who was escalating. Six weeks later, the killer claimed another victim, 30-year-old Christine Stewart. Stewart was a middle school life science teacher, and she'd taken her car to a repair shop the morning of August 14th. She dropped the car off at about 9.30 in the morning and decided to walk home. She did not live very far from the repair shop. The happily married school teacher did not make it home. Like Marita Choquette, Christine bore a resemblance to Martha Young. Stewart's husband was a builder, and he worked with many tradesmen. It was one of those tradesmen who spotted Chris walking home that morning. It was the last time she would be seen alive. At the time of her murder, Stuart and her husband, who had a very happy and loving relationship, were trying for a baby. At this point, the Lansing area was in a panic. Sure, Martha and Marita disappeared at night, and Wendy was last seen on campus, but this? This was a brazen daylight attack in a supposed-to-be-safe neighborhood. People were frightened, and law enforcement could not move fast enough to find the man who was preying on local women. Unlike the co-ed killer, Miller was attacking women in their homes and in their neighborhoods. Meanwhile, Sue Young, Martha's mother, was in regular contact with the police. She was certain that her daughter's former fiancé was not only behind the disappearance of her child, but the murder of Marita Choquette and the disappearances of Wendy Bush and Christine Stewart. And I want to mention here that there is very little available about Wendy Bush or her case, so I can't tell you what she was like as a person 
or the circumstances of her disappearance, and frankly, I'm frustrated by the lack of coverage she received. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. On August 15th, the day after Christine Stewart disappeared, Donald Miller was driving around looking for another victim. But there was no one on the street that appealed to him, and he found himself at a house in Delta Township. Delta Township is located just outside of Lansing. Miller parked his car, a brown Oldsmobile Cutlass, in the driveway and let himself into the house. Around 3 p.m., Lisa and Randy Gilbert came home from school. Their first task when they arrived was to call their stepmother, Donna Irish, and let her know they'd made it home safely. Once the call was made, Randy went outside to play at the creek. When Lisa went to find her brother, she left the house for about 10 minutes to locate him. When she returned home, there was a brown car parked in the driveway. She didn't recognize this car, but she was not overly concerned. The house was a new build, in a neighborhood of new builds, so they had had workers in and out of the house for weeks attending to various improvements and repairs, so she just assumed the car belonged to another worker. Lisa went into the house and found a young man standing there. He asked her, is your father home? And she told him, no, he won't be home until after six o'clock. At this point, Lisa was not frightened by this man in her house. When he heard her answer about her father not being home for hours, the stranger produced a knife, grabbed Lisa by the throat, and forced her into the master bedroom, where he used her father's ties to blindfold her and tied her hands. He paused his work to close the drapes in the bedroom and even returned to the front door to close and lock it. When he returned to the bedroom where she was helpless on the floor, he stripped her and sexually assaulted her. After the assault, he used a belt to strangle Lisa, but the belt broke. A broken belt did not stop him. It only slowed him down. He cast the belt aside and used his hands to strangle her. Miller does not hear the back door of the house open, but he did hear the screen door slam shut, causing him to let go of Lisa's neck. He picked up the knife and went to see who had interrupted his work. At the bottom of the stairs, he came face to face with Randy Gilbert. Miller greeted the boy with a hello and walked past him before grabbing him around the neck and plunging the knife into his chest. Their home, formerly a sanctuary, was now a scene of horror. Donald Miller was stabbing Randy Gilbert as he dragged him up the stairs. Meanwhile, Lisa Gilbert was naked, restrained, and struggling to stay alive. Fortunately, in his haste to attack her, Miller had not tied Lisa securely. She freed her feet and ran out of the house screaming for help. Still naked, she ran into the road, stopping a pickup truck. A man is trying to kill my brother. Hearing this, the driver of the pickup, James Reagan, pulled off the road and ran up the driveway of her home. He raced inside to help. Meanwhile, the Delta Township Fire Chief, Ken Duran, was also driving by. He recognized Lisa Gilbert and stopped to see what was going on. As Duran exited his car, Reagan yelled, Help her! I'm going in! And as Reagan went up the driveway, Donald Jean Miller came running out of the house. Reagan asked him if the boy was okay. Miller, who was wearing sunglasses, responded, I guess so, and got into his brown Oldsmobile. Reagan realized that this was the perpetrator. This was not a good Samaritan, and he tried to stop Miller, 
trying to open the passenger door of his car, yelling and pounding on his vehicle. But Miller started the car and backed away, knocking Reagan to the ground. Chief Duran made a note of the license plate as he attended to Lisa, bringing her into his vehicle and radioing for police and an ambulance. Once inside the house, a bruised Reagan found Randy Gilbert injured and covered in blood, but still alive. Another neighbor stopped to help, Mrs. Kraft. She was driving past with her 13-year-old daughter when they came across a chaotic scene. Feeling that the assaulted girl would be more comfortable in the company of a woman, Duran asked her to stay with Lisa until help arrived. Kraft and her daughter comforted Lisa. Meanwhile, another motorist followed the cutlass and tracked the man who'd hurt the children, but he ended up losing him in traffic. Chief Duran was a trained first responder, and he also attended to Randy. And while he wasn't sure if the child would survive his injuries, he spoke kindly to him, reassuring Randy that he was strong and he was going to get through this. Meanwhile, East Lansing police tracked the license plate number and identified Donald Jean Miller as the owner of the vehicle. Around 4 o'clock, about 40 minutes after he left the crime scene, police spotted him arriving at his girlfriend's apartment. He was taken into custody without incident. Randy and Lisa are both hospitalized, Randy for five days and Lisa for three days. They survived the horrific attack and bear both physical and emotional scars from their ordeal. Miller's girlfriend defended him, saying there was no way he could have done those things. Not possible. Not the Donald Miller that she knew. Rumor has it that she packed up her things and moved away when she was presented with the overwhelming evidence of his guilt. At this point, law enforcement has a problem. They have Miller in custody on the attempted murder and rape charges in the attack on the Gilbert children. What they do not have is evidence against him in the Choquette murder or the locations of the remains of the three women they were sure that he had murdered. So in 1978, Donald Miller went on trial for the August 15th attack. The trial was not held in Ingham County, where he was suspected of four murders, nor was it held at Eaton County, where he was accused of assaulting two children in their home. A venue change was granted, moving proceedings to the southwest corner of the state, the rural community of St. Joseph's. During the trial, Miller and his attorneys pushed the diminished capacity defense, saying that Miller was mentally ill. He thought that people were demons, and he saw the demons and needed to destroy the demons, which is why he attacked the two children. The jury heard testimony from Lisa Gilbert about how Donald Miller had taken a break from assaulting her to draw the drapes and lock the front door because he didn't want to be interrupted. These are hardly the actions of a man possessed. A judge advised the jury that if they found Miller guilty by reason of mental defect, he would be treated in a psychiatric facility and released when the treatment was over. The jury found Miller guilty of all charges and sentenced him to 30 to 50 years for rape and assault. This is good news, because a violent, unbalanced predator is off the street. However, the families of the three women, Martha Sue Young, Michigan State University student Wendy Bush, and middle school teacher Christine Stewart had no answers. The bodies of their loved ones were missing. So a decision was made to offer Miller a plea. 
10 to 15 years in the deaths of Young, Stewart, and Bush if Miller reveals the locations of the three bodies. Miller and his attorneys agreed to this offer, and in July of 1979, almost a year after his trial, he pled guilty to killing the women and took a break from his time in prison to go for a ride with law enforcement. Miller didn't even need to get out of the car. He simply told them where to go and gestured to the locations where each body was concealed. He hadn't forgotten where they were, and he was easily able to point out each place. So, I need to mention that the sentencing system in Michigan was a bit of a mess at this point. Even though he was given a 10- to 15-year sentence for three murders, it did not add anything to the amount of time he would serve behind bars. Because of mandatory time off for good behavior, it appeared that Miller would be released from prison in 1999. Between 1989 and 1997, Donald Gene Miller went before the parole board several times, and each time he was denied. It was as he approached that 20-year mark that people started to worry. In 1997, the Michigan Victims Alliance decided they needed to be proactive about his release. They called upon professionals, from judges to doctors to prison officials, to see if anything could be done about Donald Miller. Because no one wanted him back on the street. Miller was not mentally ill. He was an evil man who would kill again if he had the opportunity. Now, Miller did serve his time as well as could be expected, although I've read online in multiple places that he is a very creepy man and no one wants to share a bunk with him. I also saw that Miller, who was a regular churchgoer before his arrest, really immersed himself in religion and totes a Bible along with him constantly in prison. So the skinny, dark-haired man with glasses is up for parole and they couldn't find a good reason to deny it. So these professionals worked together and went through his prison record page by page. They were hoping for something they could use to keep him off the street. They discovered that years earlier, Miller was caught with a weapon in his cell. At the time, two years was taken from his earned good behavior. That was the consequence of the weapon. And what I learned over the weekend in Charlotte from Jen is that this weapon was a garrote that may have been a string from a, like a hoodie, and that that's what they found in his cell. So it's possible that all he had was a string, and they classified it as a weapon and used that to keep him behind bars. So when the prosecutor learns about the weapon in his cell, he decides to try him in criminal court for the offense. In this trial, Miller is found guilty. This is his third felony, and because Michigan has a habitual offender statute, the court tacked 20 to 40 years onto his sentence. But I need to remind you, 1999 was almost 25 years ago. In 2016, Miller was up for parole. Sue Young, the mother of Miller's one-time fiancé and first victim, Martha Young, died in 2014. And I'm confident that had she been alive, she would have led the charge to keep Miller in prison. In 2005, Sue Young published a book about her daughter's murder, Lethal Friendship, A Mother's Battle to Put and Keep a Serial Killer Behind Bars. If you're interested, this book is available on Amazon. 
This time, the family of Christine Stewart is spurred to action at the thought of Miller being paroled. Stewart's parents, Ken and Margaret Gusky, reach out to their friends and family in Port Huron, where they'd raised Christine alongside six other children. They asked for help in contacting the parole board, and the response was immediate. People who had grown up with Chris, including her classmates from Port Huron Catholic High School, circulated a petition at their 50th class reunion. Randy and Lisa Gilbert, who were attacked by Miller in 1978, applauded the decision to keep Miller in prison. If you're curious, Lisa Gilbert has since married and lives out of state, but her brother remains in the area and he is disappointed that anyone would consider releasing Donald Miller. The Michigan Department of Corrections received more than 50 letters regarding Miller's parole, including one from Cheryl Kraft Haddock. Cheryl's mother had stopped to help the Gilbert children that August afternoon, and Cheryl saw firsthand the trauma experienced by Miller's victims. So many letters were sent, but few, if any, were favorable. On September 30, 2016, it became official. 61-year-old Donald Jean Miller was denied parole. He was eligible again in 2021 and was thankfully denied in 2021. Donald Jean Miller admitted to murdering four women and was found guilty of the assault on Randy Gilbert and the sexual assault of Lisa Gilbert. I'm comfortable with him remaining in prison for the rest of his life. We can only hope that the parole board feels the same way. And we'll be keeping an eye on his case over the next eight years because it's possible that he will just be released at the age of 76. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.